must not touch it. <laughs> so I hope everybody can hear. So this evening, I would like to look a little uh, at a framework, at the environment of what we do, and using the framework of the four vows. So in the song tradition, this is something which is felt to be like totally essential as a context for the practice. And so this is four vows we repeat many different times, many different, any ceremony will recite the four vows. And the four vows I think are important as where the practice in a way is embedded. So we're not just sitting in meditation, you could say for its own sake, but we're sitting in meditation as part of a wider environment. So the, the four vows, generally the translation goes like this with slight difference in exact translation. Sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to cut them all. Dharma gates are limitless, I vow to penetrate them all. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to achieve it. And so I would like to, to look at this formula in a way, in a modern context. What does it mean to us now? How can we look at it? How we can interpret them? So they can be a ground, a useful inspiration for our practice, a useful framework. So the first one, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. And pos yes? Sorry, Martin, you're sometimes indistinct. Is it possible to move slightly closer to me? I could move here, actually. You're right. I move. This is a good idea. We cannot move this, but I can move. <laughs> this is very true. Movable object. And I'll try to be a little clearer. So, in a way, you have this uh, sentence, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. Uh, so, so does it mean, you know, every day, you know, how much am I doing today? 10, okay, tomorrow 15, you know, phew, still a lot to do, but you know, <laughs> let's get there. Or is it an indication of the context? that actually we practicing, not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others. And also I think it's about, part of the practice is about relationship, is about seeing the other. In the Sun tradition, there is this huge emphasis on awakening. We'll talk more about this <laughs> later. And it might give you the impression, this is it. I am awakened and then I'll save everybody. But then the question is, are you awakened all the time? 
Are you saving everybody all the time? And so in a way, what is this pointing out? Is this pointing out that actually this practice is to help us first to see ourselves as a sentient being, as a being who is alive. Because how do we consider ourselves and others? Often through the prism of very strong images. And a lot of the times through the prism of very uh, past images. And here it's, it's kind of when you're saying they are sentient beings, that it, sentient being includes people, trees, animals, everything that is alive are sentient beings. So in a way this is telling us consider life. Can you connect to life in some way? An important part of this practice is to connect to life. It needs many different forms. I think this is what it is telling us. And the other thing is telling us, personally, I would change the save, because we have had many examples of people trying to save others who don't want to be saved. So I think we have to be careful there. And maybe think about more translating it as serving. Because actually the term is to cross over, to help others to cross over. So to be of benefit, to be of help. And then the question is in a way is, how can I see other and myself in such a way that I can be of benefit, I can help them. And then, what is interesting in terms of the, the Buddha Dharma is that actually you can do this in many different ways, this vow. I vow to do this. So it's just not like, you know, a New Year resolution. This is like, you know, you're really intending. This is, you know, kind of like a framework. But what does it mean in actual fact? How am I going to go about it? How am I going, you know, because this is about developing wise compassion, wise loving kindness. So am I going to, to cultivate that? And what is interesting is that you can actually do it in different ways. You could do it through actually the practice. So like in some Tibetan tradition, and in the Theravada Vipassana tradition, you have, for example, uh, the cultivation Stephen mentioned this morning of the four Brahma Viharas, the four special qualities of compassion, loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. So here you have a technique where you intentionally cultivating something. Is it just about cultivation, so orienting towards something, toward loving, toward compassion? Or is it about that I do the practice and immediately I must feel more loving and more compassionate? And if some of us have done this practice, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't seem to work. <laughs> so that is interesting about this point of cultivation and effect. So you can do it that way. Or 
What is interesting in the Son tradition in Korea is that you don't have technically a meditation practice where you cultivate systematically loving kindness of compassion. What you have is a different framework, which I would call ethical training. So we can actually see, we can cultivate the same thing with one of the other training. You can cultivate it through meditation, you can cultivate it through ethic, you can cultivate it through wisdom. In the sound tradition, this is actually more cultivated through ethics. And so you have the Bodhisattva precept that you recite at least once a year for the lay people and every two weeks for the monastics. And what is interesting in terms of this ethical precept is that they are very practical, very pragmatic. You know, don't hit, nowadays they would say, don't hit your computer. If somebody asks for forgiveness, be forgiving. Do not burn plant at certain time because you're going to kill insect. If you are a diplomat, do it in a compassionate and wise way. If you are a merchant, do not have untrue scale, etc., etc. So here, actually, you have a very practical, a kind of all kind of little thing saying, look, in your daily life, and can you cultivate loving kindness and compassion in your daily life? In the way you relate to object, in the way you relate to people, in the way you relate in your work. So that it's a very practical aspect. So different methods, different ways. I would say in terms of wisdom, what is interesting with wisdom, how can we have that vow through wisdom? And I would say it's through actually understanding change. We'll talk about this throughout the week. I would say through understanding experientially change, then compassion also arises. And then you have the question, do I cultivate compassion directly? Or do I cultivate compassion indirectly? Because you could also see the meditation as an indirect way of cultivating compassion by, we'll talk more about this also, by dissolving selfishness. If you dissolve selfishness, then you'll have more compassion. So I think this is something to look at. Do we do it directly, indirectly, through the meditation, through the ethic, that actually we have many different avenues to cultivate this vow. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to serve them all. But then there is also another question. We endeavor, we aspire to be compassionate and to love. But is it that we attain it one day and then forever after we are loving and kind and compassionate to the same degree no matter what happened? So do we attain a permanent state or is it an impermanent state? Is it conditioned or is it 
unconditioned. Because sometimes I have the impression that people feel that if they meditate long enough, then finally they will have constantly unconditioned compassion. I am not so sure about that. So in a way, we aspire to something. Is it something which is reasonable? Because if we aspire to something which is impossible, then in a way we'll be defeated before we even start. So what is it I'm doing? Am I aspiring to something which is mythical? Or am I aspiring to actually try to actualize this compassion, this love, in my life, in the best way I can, considering the circumstances? And I think that is very important. And sometimes we will be able to be more compassionate for ourselves, sometimes to others, sometimes to both. And I think it will depend on many different factors. But it doesn't mean the vow is not there as a ground for our practice. So to be careful with that, the cultivation of it and the effect of it and the expected effect we dream of. That, I think, is also something else. To me, this is one... Um, after I uh, became a nun in Korea, I had never done much meditation, though I thought it was a good idea to do it. And then finally, I do it. And I do it the first three months. Why not? Yes. And I do it another three months. And then I really, it was very interesting to see it, it it really, that's why in a way my vow really kind of got sustained by seeing that it worked. It actually made me more compassionate. It, made, it helped me to be less on automatic pilot, to kind of just follow my habit, kind of selfish, self-regarding. But instead of considering, hmm, in this situation, can I consider my interest and somebody else's interest equally? And to me, that was a real revelation, to see it in the actual meeting of the people and how it felt to think of somebody else as much as yourself. It was such a liberating experience. And I think that's why this vow is quite important. Because it's part of the liberation, is actually to open our heart to others. It kind of has this liberating effect. Then you have the next one. Or generally, it's translated as um, delusion are inexhaustible. I vow to cut them all. So delusion, I think, I'm not so sure we could say it's pone in uh, Korean. You could translate it as difficulty, obstacle, harmless habits. I mean, you could see it as, in a way, what blocks us. 
that actually on the way, in the practice, we sometimes feel blocked, we sometimes feel we have difficulty, we sometimes, we have such a good intention, that's what is so interesting, we have such good intention because of the first vow. Because of the first vow, we really have the intention to be aware, to be clear, to be calm. And then, we don't seem to be like that. And if we just look, I mean, uh, I could look later on, we could look at other kinds, there are different kinds of um, pony, of uh, difficulty, obstacle, uh, harmful automatism. But let's just look at today, what we experience today. So what were the obstacles, difficulty, automatism, that we might have experienced today? First one, and this is interesting because all these things just, often there is a thing of, it's just me, it's my delusion, it's my terribleness, it's my whatever. But I don't think so. I think it's maybe better to think of it as obstacle, difficulties. Because one of the first things you might have encountered today was sleepiness. You know, in the morning I was sitting there, you must keep awake. You know, what are they going to think? You know, if okay. But I could feel a little sluggish. And I did not intend to be sluggish. I came with a lot of enthusiasm. I want to save everybody. <laughs> but my body is saying, I am tired. So we can actually, these obstacles are all kinds of different obstacles. So I'm not sure we can say, cut them all, cut sleepiness. But what about creatively engaging with them all? So in a way, recognizing them and not in a way identifying with them. I am a sleepy person. I'm terrible. I'm a terrible teacher. I'm sleepy when I meditate. <laughs> I did not think that. I just thought, hmm, I'm tired. Let's try to keep a little awake. You know, let's see how long it lasts. This is my mantra. How long is this going to last? So sleepiness, this is a very regular obstacle when we sit in meditation especially. And especially when we uh, try to be aware of the breath. Because the object is a little kind of uh, rather faint. And so if we're very calm already, then whoops, easily. I mean, some people, they watch the breath and it wakes them up. But some other, they can, whoops, they're a little uh, sleepy. So the thing is to, oh, I feel sleepy, yeah. I want to be awake, I want to be here. And at the same time, I feel sleepy. What can I do about this? How can I creatively engage with that? As Stephen mentioned, you can open the eyes. One of the reasons Stephen time to time was trying to be a little proactive and say, walk a little faster, is actually because, I don't know if you notice, or if that has the same effect on you as me, but when we walk at a kind of a slightly steady pace, after 10 minutes, I come back here and I'm zing! I'm really awake. I'm really, I find it, I really love that experience of being really awake, really energized. 
in a way, by the walking. And so that's also what can help the sleepiness, that we do a little bit of the walking. Or we can walk briskly before we come back for the first sitting, and we might have that. Or we might accept, I'm sleepy. This too will pass. So we try to keep, you know, relatively straight, and notice how it comes, stay a little bit, and then it goes. And if it continues, and maybe we do more lying down meditation after breakfast, after lunch, after dinner. So that's what we give you. I don't know if you've noticed, we're not this type of like, you know, giving you a hard time teacher. Maybe some of you think so by the schedule, but actually our idea is that, you know, if you really need to rest, you have time to do that after breakfast, after lunch, after dinner. That's why we're not pressing you like orange juice, you know. We just take your time. One of the masters I really loved was the one who forced his meditator in Korea to sit only eight hours a day. In Korea, this is really poor schedule. Eight hours a day is like the minimum you can do because generally they do 10 or 12 or 14. And he would go around in the evening finding the one who was still, still sitting up more than the eight hours. And he would stop them, say, you're going to sleep. When you sit, I want you awake. So again, I think there is opportunity to see how can I creatively engage with the sleepiness. Then you have the discomfort. Some of you might have, you know, some of the sitting, especially on the floor, and it might be painful. I mean, even me sitting on the chair. I don't know what happened this morning. I was sitting on the chair, and after two sitting, I started to have this, oh, this pain here, and I could see my mind going, ooh, if it continues like this, am I going to last a week? And I thought, well, let's see what happened. And it's gone in the afternoon. So again, we have discomfort. So I don't think you should have more pain than you need to have. So if you need to sit in your chair, please do so. But also, how can I creatively engage with pain, with discomfort, with sitting here? It's kind of interesting that just sitting here, because this is just a challenge itself, just to sit here, just to be alive in this moment. As Stephen said, in the posture, being with other people, doing the same thing. And of course, it can be uncomfortable, because we are so used to move. We are so used. This, I think, is one of the challenges of a sun retreat is that kind of, in a way, just sitting there. But to me, this was a great lesson, because I had to learn to do that in Korea. It was not easy for me to sit the 10 hours. <laughs> it really was not easy. But I learned, okay, how can I creatively engage with this? How can I be with it? See, it comes, it goes, it changes with the length, with the time, with all kinds of different conditions. That is what is interesting with obstacle and difficulty, is that generally they're not fixed and solid. 
They might be repetitive, but they're not fixed and solid. They come and go, and I think that's what this vow is about. Basically, I vow to creatively engage with the obstacle might come in the way, that it be outer conditions or that it be inner conditions. And then the last one of the obstacle, and that's what often in Korea they say, pone mansan. So they say the obstacle which comes for what they call topsy-turvy thoughts. And basically, you might have noticed you intend to be aware of the breath, you intend to be here, and very likely you're all over the place. If you have a relatively easy life, it will be light, thinking of this or that or another. If you have some difficulty in your life, it might be a little more obsessive thinking. Or certainly, you might sit there and suddenly you think about somebody you have not thought for 10 years, and you go this way or that way. And to really see that why do we have thought? This is an important question. Why do we have thought in meditation? Basically because we have a functioning brain. So I think it's a good idea that you have thought. It means that you know, you are, your brain is active. Basically your brain is firing. But because you're not occupied by anything else, basically you become more aware of it. But that's the point. The point of the meditation is not to stop you thinking. The point of the meditation is actually to see, hmm, I am thinking, and this is what I am thinking. And then, how am I thinking it? To me, this was a major revelation. When I did the meditation in Korea, I was to see, oh, this is what I'm thinking. And to realize, but what am I thinking about this? And I think what we start to see when we meditate is that actually there is what I would call two levels of thought. One level which I would call functioning thought. Planning, reflecting, whatever it is. And another level which actually I would call self referential thinking, which is not just functioning about thinking about this or that because I need to do so because different things, but is thinking about what you are thinking or what somebody else might be thinking or about the thinking of thinking of thinking. It's very interesting to see. And in a way, to let it go, we need to see it. And that's why I think it's more useful to say creatively engaging with this obstacle. To see, oh, that's what I'm thinking. Do I need to think about this again? Because this is a thing. Uh, you don't have that many original thoughts. I mean, you'll, at some point you will have a few. And with those you can go until they become repetitive and then you can let them go again. But it's interesting, I think, in a way you need to see your thought to let go of them. 
This is what is the creative engagement is about. And in a way, you have to see them a lot to see, finally, do I need to do this? So, in a way, we're giving them a lot of power by just continuing with them. And I think, you know, saying, I'll creatively engage with this, is saying, okay, let's look at this. But not in a self-referential way, but just see, what is it? What's the shape of this thought? What, what is it now, in this moment? Can I come back to the breath? And if I come back to the breath, where does the thought go? Because that's interesting. One moment you have this thought, and you think this is the most important thought, I have to think about it, because if I don't, I don't know, something terrible happened. Next moment you are with the breath, the thought is gone. How important was it then? Of course it might come back. If it's more obsessive, if something is more intense, it will come back. But just to see, it's very interesting, because it's the same mind. One moment the mind is caught into a story, next moment it's just here. How does it feel when it's caught? How does it feel when it's here? It's the same stuff. So in a way, with that vow, exploring this meeting of these two states, the distracted one, the identified one, the self-referential one, and the one where I am here, sitting with you, breathing, and then what is interesting, when we come back to the breath, we also come back to everything else. But I'll talk more about the next one. So the next one is, down my gates are limitless. I vow to learn them all. And so basically here, I think it's pointing out that there are many different ways to cultivate. So we can cultivate walking meditation, sitting meditation, standing, lying down. That's one way to cultivate. But we also have the cultivation of ethics. We also have the cultivation of wisdom. So, and within each of the three training, we have many, many Dharma gates. But let's look at the meditation one. So we have the meditation as a Dharma gate. And actually within that Dharma gate, there are many different techniques. You have the techniques you find in Tibetan Buddhism, you have the technique you find in, in Son Buddhism, you have the technique you find in Theravada Buddhism. And then within each of these, you have many, many different section and everybody generally saying my method is the best. Mine is more complete, is more shortcut, is more whatever. It's always a more. We seem everybody seems to be in competition with each other. Personally I'm not interested in competition. Because personally what I believe is that any gates 
is useful to some people to some degree at some time. And then it's what you encounter and what speaks to you, what works for you at any given time, because it might change over time. For a while you might do this and you might need to do that to complement it. I mean, for 10 years, I just did uh, sound practice. What we're going to do from tomorrow onward, just sitting in meditation or walking and asking, what is this? And that's what I did. So that, in a way, is a very simple technique. None li like the very elaborated, either Tibetan technique or very exhaustive, you know, Theravada technique. This was really simple. But the reason it was created was actually to be a simple technique that anybody could use anytime without much, too much background within it. Because the person we instituted in a way in the 11th century Tawe was working a lot with lay people. And he wanted a method which would work easily for them. And that's why he created this just questioning method. So for 10 years I did this questioning method. What is this? What is this? What is this? And then I got to England and I moved into a community where everybody does inside meditation, vipassana meditation. So I do a few retreats and I think that's not a bad method. I think that's a good method. And then I realize the connection between the Zen practice and the inside practice, all the Tibetan practice. And I think what we have to look at is not as a kind of the end product, the technique itself, but the basis, the beginning of the technique. And the beginning of all this technique is about cultivating together what are in the original text called Samatha and Vipassana, but which my teacher, again and again, this was one of his kind of mantra, you must practice together song song jok jok. This was like, again and again, we were told, song song jok jok, that's what you must do. So song song means bright bright, jok jok means quiet quiet. And so basically, he was telling us to practice equally samatha and vipassana. So when we sit in meditation, that's what we try to do. To cultivate concentration. Personally, nowadays, I prefer to call it anchoring. So that when we use, we use a method, we generally have an anchoring point. Today, we had the anchoring point of the breath. And to show that when we focus, when we try to meditate, we're not trying to become like concentrated tomato paste. Yourself, but more concentrated. So we become like little, kind of little more. There is more vibration, or there is more I don't know what. Often there is, and through that power of this concentration, that all the thoughts are going to kaput. Personally, I don't think we're trying to become concentrated tomato paste or 
something to that degree. I think we're trying to become like an anchor of a boat. So that we use the anchor of the breath or of the question and later on the sounds as a means to anchor us in the moment. But like the anchor of the boat, it doesn't mean we don't move. So we move around the anchor, but the anchor helps us not to go too far away. This is a function of the anchor. And so one of the most important things in meditation is not to stay with the breath or with the question all the time. That I think is an impossible task. Unless you practice long, long hours, then of course it can happen. But then you, it, this requires really lots of uh, dedication. And I don't think you need that much concentration in order to actually develop in meditation, unless you want to do that. I have nothing against concentrated state, but I'm not so sure that they're very practical in daily life. And I think what we're doing is about daily life. So anchoring. So to use the breath as an anchor, the question as an anchor. And to me, one of the important things about that is what I mentioned previously. You come back to the breath, you come back to the rooks. You come back to the freshness or the hotness of the air. You come back to yourself in its multiple dimension. Instead of just being a thought, a sensation, or a feeling, or a story, or a memory. This is what is interesting. When we get lost, we reduce ourselves. When we come back, we expand ourselves. That's what is interesting about the anchoring. Is that actually it creates space in the conditions that forms us. And it also helps in terms of bringing back to the creative functioning and helping to dissolve that self-referencing. Because the less we feed the self-referencing, after a while it goes. Because we actually don't need it. We think we don't have to think about thinking unless we are a philosophy professor and then this is totally different. Then for their job they need to do that. So that's the anchoring. Then you have the vipassana aspect. With that is done technically in many different ways, in different traditions. But the idea is to actually look deeply into the experience. And it's also using the ability of the mind, the human being, to be bright. So to see vipassana looking deeply what I call experiential inquiry is about using the ability of the human being, of the mind, to be bright, to inquire into the experience. So not to inquire in an abstract way. I mean, this is useful for different things, planning everything, but in terms of the meditation, we're trying to inquire in the experience itself so that we can be more inside the experience, instead of commenting on the experience. So just what is going on now here? And I'll explain how it works with the what is this tomorrow. 
And so one of the things we try to do as part of that inquiry is experiencing change. But as it happens, and this to me is one of the big things we can do in terms of Dharma gates in daily life, is to bring this question to anything that happens. How long is this going to last? If it does, and that's where wisdom develops. If it doesn't last very long, often don't worry about it, unless it's harmful and then you have to do something fast. And if it lasts long, then how can I creatively engage with this? What are the conditions? What is going on? So in a way, what one essential thing about this retreat is to notice just change, external change, internal change. Not to explain it, but just to experience it. So then it counterbalances our tendency to, have a, to, to want to permanentize. Like I was going to do this morning, I'm going to have pain in my back for the whole week. And it went by the afternoon. So it's just seeing how we have such a tendency and so going in the experience, experiencing change, is to help us there. And then the last one is, the Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to attain it. Let's say, in terms of the phrasing, it could be, it's a little grandiose. <laughs> but let's say, the Buddha's way, I would say, each person's potential is quite high. Can I cultivate it to the best of my ability? That's what I think it's about. It's not saying the Buddha's is the best, the Buddha's way is the best, and I need to get there and become the greatest enlightenment Buddha, but it's just to recognize I have a potential. I can develop it. Can I go about doing that? And to me, that's what we're all doing here. We just recognize, yeah, we have a potential to develop more wisdom, more compassion. And I intend to do that. I'm going to work on that. But again, being careful of cultivation and effect and expectation. It doesn't mean, you know, I will be awakened every moment. But that's some moment. I might wake up. I might be more compassionate. I might be more wise. And that will benefit myself and others. So that's what I wanted to share today. <laughs> Are there any questions or comments? We have a little time. Sure, sure, I can do that. I can write them down and put them on the board. Okay, with uh, the, the <laughs> traditional... Because, I mean, the, tr the thing is that there are so many different translations and little, but, yeah, I could give you my translation, if you want. I'll give you my translation there. So 
So just uh, to indicate that uh, we have 30 minutes of walking meditation now, in principle, but we see this period as being a possibility for 15 minutes of uh, discussion, uh, comments for whatever, if you want to, but sometimes you don't feel like it, so that's why it's walking or a little bit of discussion, and just for you to know that. So if there is no comments or question now, then we will have some walking meditation. And so the way the walking meditation is going to work after the talk is that the people who want to walk outside can go and walk outside, but the people who want to walk inside can walk inside. And so they might, we might kind of just slowly go outside and then the one who wants to stay in, then they can do the regular walking meditation. And then I'll come at a quarter to nine for the final sitting.